You know, Eugene, somewhere out there, there's a universe in which you and I are wandering down to our respective local polling stations right about now and sanitizing our hands and taking our personal pen, blue or black, but not red, and doing our democratic duty by writing one tick for a party and another tick for a candidate. And another couple of ticks for the referenda. Referendums. Ha, gotcha. On cannabis and euthanasia. And then the other universe, Eugene and Adam will have a cruisy sort of day before getting in front of a TV at about 7pm and waiting for the election results from the September 19th New Zealand general election. But we're not in that universe, are we? We're in the one where COVID came back. And the election got pushed out. And will listeners get a whole extra four weeks off? Tick, tick. Stuff 2020. Election. Podcast. Lucky old listeners. No mai hari mai ki tick, tick. Stuff 2020 election podcast. Mo te rahuroi. Mahuru te kouma iwa. Adam Dudding Tene. Ko Yichin Bingham Tene. Tena Koto Katoa. Kiakaha Te Reo Māori. We bring you the news, some of the more unusual things about the selection that New Zealand is embarking on, and then we slow things down to focus on one particular kōrero. There are 20 days until the election. All right, we have a packed show today chatting to some really interesting guests about the upcoming leader debates, which kick off next week. So we're just going to crack on with things and jump straight to the bit where I say, first, Eugene, what's been happening? This week, it's all about the money, isn't it? Like, earlier in the week was the pre-fu, the pre-election fiscal update. So basically, that's where the books are open, so there's no surprises for any incoming government. Then there was the release of the official stats on Thursday, a bunch of them, which showed we were officially in recession with negative growth two quarters in a row. The figure's sort of not as horrible as expected, but I haven't met a good recession yet. So then... Yesterday, National released its alternative budget, which our stuff colleague Thomas Coglin, he had a great line, he called it the, the mother of alternative budgets. Nice hat tip to Ruth Richardson's 1991 budget there, Thomas. Um, there's promises of temporary big tax cuts, and they've sort of shied away from some of what they were talking about, about how fast they would pay back the, the debt that's mounting to deal with the COVID issue. But there are still big cuts, so slashing 60 to 75% of what Labor has promised to spend over the next three years. Yes. What else? Uh, Winston Peters announced a policy that it'll get the price of a pack of fags down to $20. Māori Party announced a policy for Aotearoa to be officially renamed Aotearoa. And Climate Change Minister James Shaw announced that 200 New Zealand businesses and financial organisations are going to have to be required to report on their climate change risks. And then finally, the sort of, you know, the COVID shadow that hangs over everything in this selection. You know, I've got the pictures of the candidates all out there doing elbow bumps and socially distancing from people. Well, there's a bit of biffo going on on Twitter yesterday afternoon. So there's a, a picture that David Seymour tweeted, and it's Jacinda Ardern uh, taking a selfie surrounded by people. And he's written, hospitality businesses can't make money at level two because of single server and social distancing rules, the four S's. Meanwhile, the person responsible for the rules is self-serving and not social distancing. So the photo has Ardern with the phone held up uh, in good selfie style, uh, taking a photo. She's surrounded by a group of people. Yeah, there's a good dozen people there, I guess. Yeah, I think. And they're all sort of within, there's about 13, I counted, within close proximity to her. And then there's others beyond that. The issue is not so much the number. It's that everyone's so close together. No one's wearing masks. So that, that was tweeted by Seymour in the afternoon. Earlier on, it had been posted to Twitter by someone else who had also uploaded it to Kiwi 
blog where there was a lot of discussion about Jaspinder. I think you probably can gauge that kind of conversation. Now, I did a bit of sort of back checking. I thought, is this photo real? You know, is it is it a recent photo or is this something that's been dug up? But no, it was taken a couple of days ago. It's actually a stuffed photo. It was taken in Palmerston North outside Massey University. And you can find other photos of Ardern if you go looking for them in close proximity to people. There was another photo I saw of her at a building site taking a photo. So, you know. Does seem or have a point. Yeah. So I thought I'll have a look and see what else there is in terms of images of politicians. Uh, there was that famous image, of course, of Judith Collins having her, her finger in the mouth of a baby down south. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yesterday afternoon there were some pictures that uh, New Zealand first put up on Winston Peters' uh, Facebook page from a meeting in Hamilton. Now, first of all, there was a, sort of a wide shot of a meeting and there was lots of social distancing going on. People were sitting down. But one particular picture raised a question for me. There's a picture of him in discussion with a woman uh, who looks a bit elderly, I'll say. Is it, is it okay to say that? I think you can say that she looks a little elderly. Yes, yes. They're very close together. Um, probably mm, no, less than arms length, aren't, aren't they? You can see the photo, Adam. Yep. Um, and neither of them have got masks on, so you know, is that an issue? And then yesterday afternoon, uh, there's a picture that David Seymour posted to his Twitter account. Oh. And it shows him, yeah, so he's uh, sitting down very close to a, a fellow candidate. So that's not going to be an issue because they're probably in the same bubble really, aren't they? Because they're travelling around on that bus. Mm-hmm. They're eating fish and chips, I guess, you know, should you be diving into the same packet of fish and chips? Well, the candidate, she's got her own plate there. So I guess she sort of got that out of the way. But, you know. I guess everyone's facing scrutiny, aren't they? That's quite the pictorial investigation, Eugene. Um, Some of my finest work. Where have you landed up? Well, I guess one overriding thing is I'm a little bit worried about David Seymour's diet. Fish and chips and coke? The two people about to take the stage tonight want power. They want to run the country on your behalf. Good evening and welcome to this final leaders debate to vote 17. Ah, the ghosts of elections past. Patrick Gower and Mike Hosking there introducing the 2017 leaders debates for 3 and TVNZ. Please welcome the leaders of the National and Labour parties, Bill English and Jacinda Ardern. This time around though, there's been a bit of a change. That's right, no Hosking. Yeah, that, but no, I mean, no Bill English. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So, next week we have the first of the leader head-to-head debates. Ardern versus the pretender to her Prime Ministerial throne, Nationals Judith Collins, the first of 2020's four-round party leader pugilistic square-offs, mano a mano. Hang on, doesn't that mean... No, it doesn't. It's a Spanish phrase meaning hand-to-hand. I did not know that. Anyway, so... Ardern versus Collins, round one, moderated by Sir John Campbell. Is he going to be a sir? When is he going to be a sir? Anyway, just John Campbell on TVNZ next Tuesday. Round two, hosted by News Hub's Patrick Gower on three, on September the 30th. There's the Press Stuff Leaders Debate, hosted by Luke Malpass and Kamala Heyman, streaming on Stuff on October the 6th. And then the final, head-to-head, hand-to-hand, mano-a-mano, whatever, Back on TVNZ, but this time moderated by Jessica Much Mackay on October the 15th. That's just two days before the election. In between, there's a number of multi-party debates, finance debates, electorate debates, but the majority of the focus really is on those head-to-head debates, isn't it? That's where many of the memorable moments have come in previous campaigns. 
John Key versus Phil Goff in 2011. Show me the money. Show me the money. Rob Muldoon and David Longy in 1984. Thank you. Thank you. What did he say? I love you, Mr. Longy. Thank you. It's Muldoon saying to Longy, I love you, Mr. Longy, which was sort of interpreted as the outgoing Prime Minister sort of waving the flag a bit at the end of that weird snap election campaign. Love isn't something you generally associate with Muldoon, but anyway, I'm, I'm not sure we're going to see the same outpouring of aroha from Muldoon's political descendant, Judith Collins. But we'll see. You, you never know what's going to happen in a debate. That's right. So with debate season upon us, we thought it was time to get our heads in the game and we called up a variety of experts. One of them you'll hear from... Brooke Kinnagel Moran. I'm um, president of the Victoria University Debating Society and I also sit on the New Zealand Schools Debating Council, which administers all high school debating in Aotearoa. Yeah, Brooke. She's a legit debating expert and we asked her to give us a debate lesson. First, though, we wanted to talk to someone who's been involved in political campaigning and in preparing candidates for debates. So we rang up Stephen Mills, and I'm an executive director of UMR Research. As well as running a polling company, Stephen has been involved in more than 50 political campaigns over the years for Labour parties on both sides of the Tasman. We started with a pretty basic question. What's the point of debates? Well, I think it's head-to-head combat, and people do find that interesting. I think you know, far more people get their impressions from that than they do from any direct contact with politicians, hardly anybody will go to political meetings and so on. And then it kind of does dominate the news for quite a while as well, because there's always got to be a verdict on winner and loser. There'll be all the commentators' opinions across the media and online, you know, who won, who lost. If there is a moment that is really interesting and goes viral, then that kind of becomes really important. So they can kind of really drive a news cycle for some time. How important are the TV debates this time around? Well, I think they're always important, but this time, for a number of reasons, I think they could be more important. And the main factors in that are are COVID, um, obviously, which leads to restrictions on normal campaigning. So it's hard. For instance, to sort of generate momentum with big crowds and walkabouts. I mean, I think if we're seeing a normal campaign, Winston Peters would be sort of speaking kind of excited crowds and kind of great power voters and, and getting a bit of kind of momentum that way, um, getting on the news in kind of more positive settings than he's been able to manage so far. Um, I think Jacinda Ardern, it'd be kind of being mobbed. And so, you know, Labour will be missing out on those scenes of extreme popularity, um, which you can't have under COVID at the moment. And I think National would also be working in front of bigger and more enthusiastic crowds as well. And there are moments, you know, of kind of humanity when something goes really well in one of those exchanges with people. I mean, the media will always run it. Sort of one guy goes out or one person goes out and sort of abuses a leader. That'll make the news. And if, you know, they look kind of discomforted, even if people think that's poor, they'll still kind of take an impression from that, which may not work in favour of the politician. So all those kind of moments have been filtered out of the campaign to date. We may get them if we go to level one, of course, before the campaign's over, which seems probable if there's no more cases. Right. So the head-to-head debates do matter. But actually, there are some other really important debates already underway. Tāmaki Makoto, Tāmaki Heringa Waka, Kenga Mata Waka Otemotu, Raromai Kitehui Porti. That was Mihi Narangi Forbes introducing the first of the seven Hui Porti 2020, or should I say, Rua Tikau, Rua Tikau. Those debates focus on the seven Māori electorates. Tāmaki Makoto kicked it off on Tuesday, and Hauraki Waikato was on Wednesday. I'm going to plug them because I think they're really worth watching if you haven't seen them. They're streamed live on NewsHub, 3Now and Facebook, and they're screened on three on Saturday and Sunday mornings. The other five Māori electric debates are over the next three weeks. Tune in, tick-tickers.
So judging by the first two, the tone is a bit different from what you might expect in a televised debate. It's a tone that's set by Mihi herself, and she's written a piece for the spin-off about the five rules that debating candidates should follow when they're in her furry. We'll get to those in a minute, but she also explained what it takes to be the host of a big political debate. So we rang her up to ask her about it. So in terms of your role, you said wasn't so much your decades of experience as a journalist, as a kick-ass journalist, by the way, that come to the fore. It's your experience as a mum. What do you mean by that? For anyone who's had to facilitate a panel, there's a lot of thinking that goes in there and holding on to ideas, waiting for someone to finish and not forgetting that idea. And, you know, it's basically storytelling in a live forum and that isn't really journalism. Journalism doesn't prepare you for that. That's more kind of juggling balls in the air. And the closest example I can think of that is just managing homes, children, fights, scraps, you know, pocket money, chores, washing, all those kinds of things. So that's why I use that analogy. It's kind of on, to be honest. And you will know this from being parents yourselves. Yeah, that whole wrangling and getting everyone out the door on time. Yes, timekeeping is uh, really important in those debates. You've only got eight minutes each part, and um, that sounds like a long time, but it's not. So, you know, there's a fairness to it too, and that's exactly with children in your house. I've got four of them, and if you treated one different to the next one, they'll tell you. (laughs) And so that's really important in a debate too is just being able to offer people an opportunity. Also, the other thing is if you're challenging people, you've got to challenge the next person or throw them a bone every now and then because the audience will tell you if you're beating up on people. In your experience, who tends to display the most maturity, adult debate participants or your primary school age children? My six-year-old. Yep. Straight black and white. Those guys, those six-year-olds and those 10-year-olds, they truly, truly know how to debate. Great training. I would be petrified, terrified of doing a debate with 14-year-olds. Hell yeah, we hear you, Mihi. Anyway, we're kind of off track. We wanted to know about her rules, remember, those five rules of her whare if you're going to appear on a debate she's moderating. Kotahi Kitarima, one to five, what are they? One, we are for knowing a first, last and always. Two, answer questions honestly or you'll be in big trouble. Three, do your homework. Four, just like mums, cameras see everything. And five, my favourite, be a koha, not a hoha. Right, so then we asked me here to step through and explain each rule. So, number one. We are for knowing a first, last and always. Seeing it's it's Māori Language Week, can you start by translating the central word there? Whanaunga, um, related. We're related. And it doesn't have to be whakapapa-wise or DNA-wise. It might just be, you know, you've worked with that person or you know somebody who knows them or you're married to their cousin or something like that. I think it's important to remember this so that we can maintain some respect in our debates. And then there is the actual whakapapa side of it. It is important to remember that people are related and they have generational kind of connections in politics. And and I guess this principle holds even if we're to zoom out to the Pakeha world, there's that little degree of relatedness between the people up on the stage, I guess. There's totally relatedness on those stages, but I don't think we acknowledge them like we do in Te Ao Māori. You know, for example, in the debate we had last night, uh, we had Pini Henare, who's the Minister of Whānau Ora, and John Tamihere, who's the CEO of Waipareira. And those two work, you know, intimately in terms of their daily work because one's a funder and one's the doer. So there is a whanaungatanga between those two 
just there. So back to that point of um, those mainstream debates, absolutely there'll be some whanangatanga between, you know, those leaders and TVNZ and the broadcaster and the presenter. Everyone is connected and related in some way. Okay, on to number two. Answer questions honestly or you'll be in big trouble. Sounds sensible, but politicians lie, don't they? Well, I'm not sure if they lie, but they definitely omit to tell some things sometimes. And as a good politician will do is never answer your question and slide sideways to the next thing. That's called like the touch step. You know, Carlos Spence is really good at it. Hmm. And some politicians are great at sidestepping to the next one. So that's the role of the facilitator. That's me. So I have to remember all of the policies that have ever been in ever (laughs) in my life and come back to them. So, you know, just reminding them of what the Labour Party did in 2004 and the Seabed Foreshore and those kinds of things, because, again, everything is connected. What's the big trouble that they face if they lie on one of your debates? Well, there's a saying that waiho ma te whakama hei patu, um, they'll be beaten up by their own shame. So if you say something that's not right in a debate and then the facilitator will remember or maybe one of the other MPs will remember and they will raise that issue and you will feel the shame of not admitting that at the time. Right. Number three. Do your homework. Isn't that one reasonably obvious? Everyone surely should turn up knowing their own policies. Absolutely. I think also when you're in government, you have to turn up knowing your colleagues' policies because there's interrelatedness across those ministries now. So what happens in OT has an effect on Fano order, has an effect in justice and corrections. So don't just turn up if you're a minister knowing your own policies, turn up knowing what your mates are doing. Do you ever find yourself feeling sorry for debaters who lose their way on stage mid-debate? That's where kindness comes in. (laughs) And I think that if you want people to come back to your stage, you have to look after them. And I find in the Māori debates that the other contenders look after each other. And so if someone loses their way, and it's really easy to lose your way when the pressure of cameras and lights and live audience watching, is sometimes you just lose your train of thought. We all do it. When we're in conversation, we think, oh, I forgot where I was going there. Doing that in a live debate really sucks. And so I've seen other contenders join in or say, yeah, yeah, you know, on that point, I think what they're trying to say. And it's really nice because no one wants to see someone, you know, fry out there all on their own. Number four. Just like mums, cameras see everything. I love the Marama Davidson screen grabs that you ran alongside the piece where she's in the background giving side eye during a Simon Bridges speech. So tell us what you've seen, this business of cameras seeing everything. The camera, you know, the attention's not even on you, but someone like Marama Fox, she can make it all about her by just her body language, by her eyes, by her pūkana. Um, You know, they all do it. Every good Māori politician has a way of using their body language and their eyes and their mouths and their positions and just their wairua, their Māori, and, you know, to express themselves. And it really puts people off. Mm. And it also speaks without using your mouth. Do you have any other visual advice seeing the cameras are on? For instance, I don't know, avoid wearing stripes, that kind of thing. Don't pick your nose. That's a biggie. When you sip your water, just remember where you are in the debate just in case it's coming to you next. I've seen people kind of 
it puts you off if you're not on time. Um, turn off your phone before the debate. Watch your profile. You know, if you like your profile, then put yourself in the profile. If you don't want to be like really profiled, just be careful with your body language, where your shoulders are. Keep your shoulders back. Don't think, okay, I've finished talking. Now I can just kind of hunch over and forget I'm on television. Your stance is important. The way you stand, um, what are you going to do with your legs? You don't want to stand too far apart with your, you know, like you're going down for a rugby scrum. So you have to really consider what's happening with your suit and your dress and your shoes. And you just have to be really on all the time. You're on camera the whole time, even though you're not on camera. And don't look at the camera. That's weird. <laughs> ah. It's weird. I mean, you know, you're in the audience and you're watching a debate and then the person looks at you. That's like <gasps> creepy. Yeah. There's a few politicians in the past that have done that. They just keep, every time they talk, they look straight down the camera and it's like, don't do that. Number five. My favourite, be a koha, not a hoha. My Māori dictionary would make that be a gift, not a bore, or perhaps be a contributor, not a drag. Is, is yeah, that right? Yeah, be a contributor, not a drag. That's a great one. Yeah, don't just say things just because if it's going to cause something, you know. And also, it's it's actually about what you're going to do in your time. If you have the opportunity to get into Parliament, make sure you leave a koha. And don't be a hoha like some people we're seeing at the moment. Don't be in there cashing in, taking your salary, not doing anything. Make sure you go in there and leave a legacy. Those principles, do they apply as fully to a mainstream debate as they do to these more specifically Māori-focused debates? I think we should apply those same expectations to mainstream and I think that our politicians should create better relationships with their local communities and the people that they represent and uh, that would make it harder for them to be a hoha and not a koha. <laughs> um, we talk about being a family of five point something million and so let's be whānau. So let's know where our politicians come from. Let's know what their burning desires are. It's important to know where they come from. Who are their ancestors? Where's their family lived and what communities have they participated in? What are the industries that they're interested in? And what are their pet hates? You know, those are all really important things. We're voting for these people to represent us for three years. We need to know, you know, when that shit hits the fan. What are they going to be like? Do you have a number one piece of advice for yourself as the person chairing debate or for John Campbell or Jessica Much Mackay, the people who are moderating the debates? Last night after the debate finished, I thought, ah, oh, did I hold them to account enough? You know, did I really wrangle them and test them? And I woke up this morning and I thought... No, I think that actually what we need to do in those debates is allow enough space and actually pull out of it, step back as facilitators, and it can't always be about us so much, and mm. allow our audiences to hear from the people who are going to represent them. You know, I shouldn't even really be remembered in a debate. It should be just like, oh, that was a seamless debate. I got to hear lots about the policies of Tāmaki Makoto. I really know the three people who are standing, and now I kind of feel like I know who I'm going to vote for. It shouldn't be like, gee, John had a great suit on. Gee, John asked a really great question. Oh, Patrick smashed him on that. I don't think this is the time for that kind of journalism. This is really just facilitation. And a good facilitator is um, someone who keeps people on time, who asks the questions and create a safe environment where they are able to share their, their wants and their aspirations and their concerns. These are great rules, both for the debate host and the debaters. 
Still not convinced they'd work with 10-year-olds, though, but nonetheless. Anyway, I think it's time we got back to... Brooke Kinnagel-Moran, President of the Victoria University Debating Society. So as well as organising and competing in debates, Brooke is a debating coach and judge. Brooke, what makes a good debater? The marker of a really good debater is the ability to be really comparative. In debating, you have to argue for one side or one sort of specific policy. And it's one thing to talk about why that policy is really good. But I think something that particularly politicians are really bad at is being able to go off script and say to their opponent in a debate, actually, not only is our policy really good, but relative to yours, it is better for these reasons. It's also better than the status quo for these reasons. And so not just talking about the policy in and of itself, but sort of contextualising it. Right. So not only know your own stuff, but know your opponents as well. So how much of it is about good preparation versus being quick on your feet? Too much preparation can actually be a really harmful thing for debating. It kind of prohibits you from being able to engage in a really genuine way with your uh, with your opponent's quick thinking and being able to adapt to the situation, respond to the needs of your voters or the judge or um, the context of the debate is much, much more important. Okay. So you're, you're a debating judge. Yeah. As an audience, what should we be looking out for? What are the signs that will tell us, oh, this candidate is really good? I think that specifically in electoral debates, there's a really harmful habit of politicians to fall into rhetoric and fall into scaremongering, uh, talking about you know, how outrageous or egregious house prices are in Auckland, they can kind of trick an audience into thinking that they've told you how much they're going to solve the housing crisis, but actually they've just talked about how bad the housing crisis is for five minutes. So you think that they've got a policy, um, but they actually don't. So I think that it's interesting as an audience to kind of challenge yourself to look past someone who uh, can speak really fluently or really emotively and actually think, are they using logic to explain to me why their policy is actually going to solve this? Or have they just gone on about the problem in a really charismatic way for five minutes? How much weight should people put on the debates when they're choosing who to vote for? I think that it's important uh, to know that the people who are debating each other in the election debates are also going to be debating each other in Parliament and kind of advocating for you if you vote for them, uh, if they do get there. So I guess it is important in that sense and that you want to know that someone mm. can hold their own uh, when they're being barraged by lots of questions or in question time or in a debate or whatever. But I think it's equally important to actually have a read of the policies because, of course, what you see in the debates is definitely condensed and over-emotive and a more sensationalised version that's designed to get good sound bites. So I think it's important that uh, voters not only watch the debates, but also do dive into that policy and think, is this actually a good policy? Is it well formulated? And don't just go off what the politicians are saying to you in the debates. So what do the politicians themselves think about these debates? Stephen Mills, the UMR pollster who's been involved in dozens of Labour campaigns, says... Oh yeah, the candidates and their teams take this stuff super seriously. We prepare um, very extensively for them. I mean, if we're doing our job properly, running a campaign, there'll be time put aside and it'll be worked through very carefully. Uh, there'll be kind of discussions on what strategy should be followed, what your opponent is likely to do, what how you should respond, what the issues are, what the key messages are. There'll probably be a document produced which has all those kind of key points and arguments and the facts that the leader needs. And then there'll be a rehearsal with members of staff or others playing the opponent. Paint a picture for me. I'm really interested in these rehearsals. Are there cameras there to create the impression? Are there lights? How real is it? And how 
I guess, how much fun is it? Oh, it can be fun. It can be a bit tense at times. But absolutely, you know, there's cameras there. It's done in the segments to get as much information as they can about the actual debate that will take place, um, what the questions will be, though they're usually relatively vaguely framed by the um, television um, channel. And then you'll kind of run through, and then we all go and watch it and, you know, pick it to pieces carefully, uh, what went right, what went wrong, and then you might do it again or move on to the next issue, depending on how satisfied you are with how well it went. In those rehearsals, how many question lines might you throw at the person? I haven't done this since Phil Goff was leader. That was the last time I was involved in debate prep, so I don't know whether that's changed, but they're usually sort of five main headings like foreign affairs and trade, the economy, housing, the environment. And then you've got to also prepare for the sort of smart-ass, silly kind of gotcha-type questions as well. You know, somebody will brief on the price of milk and bread and so forth. Hmm. Do you have uh, a favourite New Zealand debate moment or moments the kind of ones in New Zealand, I was sort of thinking about that before, that have been important. I think Helen Clark in 1996. Oh, I find it a very scary prospect, as I do the Christian... Uh, she she didn't become Prime Minister that year, but I think her strong performance in the first debate kind of put her on the road to being Prime Minister, to nearly winning in 96 and winning in 1999. Um, 2005, I think, was important to her because that was a really close election and she gave Brash a consistent hiding in the debates there at one stage telling him his own policy uh, when he got it wrong. John Key had that show-me-the-money moment against Phil Goff in 2011 and against David Cunliffe challenging him on some complex aspects of capital gains, which he couldn't answer, 2014. But I think also the 2008 debate, I think this is kind of probably the closest equivalent, this first one between... Ardern and Collins was between Key and Clark in 2008 and the fact that Key, you know, handled himself well and by most accounts won that debate. It wasn't sort of smashing, but I think he kind of did edge Helen Clark and that and that basically ended any hopes for Labour in that campaign. So I think they have been quite critical. Some memorable moments there for sure. But, you know, we couldn't take a look at leaders' debates on TV without switching channel for a moment to the birthplace of TV debates. Thank you, Mr. Nixon. Kennedy Nixon, 1960. That completes the opening statements and now the camera. Almost. Technically, the first televised debate was 1956 when the campaigns for the two contenders, incumbent Eisenhower and Democrat Stevenson, they brought in two political women, Eleanor Roosevelt for the Democrats and Margaret Chase Smith for the Republicans, and they debated in place of the presidential candidates. Huh? Why? Is it, so is it like they brought in political wives to debate for the husbands or something? No, 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 no. Roosevelt, she was the former first lady, but she was really steeped in the party. That was why she was there. And Margaret Chase Smith, she was a senator. All right. Half a century later, they still haven't figured out how to have a woman president, but nice to know they got in early with having women debating on TV. Kind of weird, though. In summary, Eugene, I did not know that. There you go. So... Let's go to 1960, which was the first time that the candidates themselves, Kennedy and Nixon, as you said, Thank you, Mr. Nixon. That completes the they faced off. And now the candidates will answer questions or comment. This debate is the one that's credited with propelling JFK to the White House and really dragging political campaigning into the television age. I come out of the Democratic Party, which in this century has produced Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman. Kennedy had put a lot of thought into it. He even went and quizzed the producers about the camera angles beforehand and he wore a dark suit, making sure he had a tan to look healthy and to really kind of pop on screen. The test of whether America moves is whether the federal government plus the state government... Plus Whereas Nixon, he just looked awkward and sweaty and he had a knee injury which made him uncomfortable and he looked kind of washed out in a grey suit. What are some other classics? There's Ronald Reagan, 
who came up with a pretty great zinger in 1984. He was up against Democrat Walter Mondale. At 73, there were questions as to whether Reagan was too old for the presidency. So, of course, age came up in the debate. And Reagan had a brilliant response, really. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. Ben. Yeah, and with that one quip, he diffused the whole issue. Most often, of course, because these are television debates, it's not so much what's said that makes a difference, it's what you can see. Like we were talking about with JFK's and Nixon's suits. But also think of Donald Trump stalking around like a caged animal behind Hillary Clinton in 2016. And there's a killer moment in a Clinton-Bush senior debate of 1992 when a member of the audience is asking a question and Bush is caught on camera looking at his watch like he's just bored and wants to get out of there. Ouch. Clinton won that election, of course. But Bush Jr. got one back for the family when he debated Al Gore in 2000. Not only what's your philosophy and what's your position on issues. There's a moment where Gore gets up out of his seat and I think he's trying to intimidate Bush or something. He goes up and stands awkwardly close to him. Bush just stops mid-sentence, looks quizzically at Gore and just nods with a smirk. But can you get things done? And I believe I can. It's cutting. So back to New Zealand. What can we expect when Collins faces up to Ardern? We ask Stephen Mills to set the scene. Bear in mind, he is a Labour loyalist. In this debate, I think, you know, National will be going into it 20 to 25 points behind Labour. Mm. So they almost need a king hit, which is really hard. But they certainly need a win much more than Labour does. They do need some momentum. And I think that means they're likely to take more risks than normal, that they'll try and come at Jacinda Ardern to sort of hit her with a zinger, get something viral going afterwards. So I think that adds a bit of weight to the importance of this first debate as well. Right. So that sort of puts extra pressure on. So how does Jacinda Ardern prepare for that and respond to that? Well, I'm sure her staff will be discussing the best ways to respond. I think, you know, she does need, if that's what happens, I mean, that's, um, you know, Judith Collins has mostly run a pretty muted campaign to date, but if it does, you know, she just has to stay cool. And if she kind of can get in the counter joke in, well, then it'll be a victory to her, of course. But I think National's the one, I mean, I've been in campaigns when you're miles behind and your whole frame becomes that you do need to take a risk. And that's the kind of frame of mind I think National will be in going into preparation for this debate. So here we go then, eh? Debate season 2020, tune in. It's going to be interesting. Sure is. So who are you picking? Well, if someone drops a bombshell and picks up the anti-parking ticket policy I floated the other day, I reckon they'll have a chance. You're still hung up on that. Have you thought about just writing to the council? Bigger than that, Adam. It's bigger than that. That was the Tick Tick Podcast. Mō te rahurui, mahuru te iwa. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham, thank you to Mihi Narangi Forbes, Brooke Kennedy-Jill Moran, Stephen Mills, Jack Price, Catherine George, Patrick Coutson, John Hutterfeld and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email ticktick at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We will be back next week. Ma te wa.